0: big welcome to this episode of the podcast we have heaps to get through today because the olympics is on and whenever there's a major sporting event on whether it be the tour de france whether it be any pro cycling triathlon race or something as big as the olympics we want to talk about it and there's good reason for that because uh, we can learn so much from watching athletes perform at the top of their level at a once-in-a-four-year event. And uh, you know, props to Channel 7. They're giving such good insight, behind-the-scenes insight into a lot of the athletes' training schedules, their, their life around training, their life around the Olympics. Uh, you get such a good insight into the mindset of the athletes, their preparation, the pressure they're feeling. There's been a lot of talk and controversy around pressure. Uh, these olympics and uh, we love it all we love soaking it all up because there is so much to learn there's little bits of tips or tricks you can pick up there's little training uh, habits or um, race preparation habits that you can pick up a whole bunch of lessons you can learn from watching pro athletes at the top of their game no matter what sport it is you know I, i love watching the really obscure sports in olympics and learning from people at the top of their game you know even in the shooting just how they stay so relaxed And how can they be so composed that they have to stay dead still? So a lot to talk about in today's podcast. And just a reminder that if you like our podcast, the best thing you can do for us is to leave a five-star review and a positive comment on Apple Podcasts. We would really appreciate that. So dad, welcome to the episode before we dive into the Olympics, uh, our starting segment, What Are You Grateful For?
1: Yes, thanks, George. Uh, good introduction. Uh, today's episode is going to be really, uh, really good. And I think there's a lot of uh, valuable information um, that we can learn from from what you've just said. Um, so what am I grateful for? I've got enormous gratitude um, for summer and I hate winter. <laughs> and, uh, the only reason I get through winter is wh- because I know it's a European summer um, and the rest of the world's having incredible sporting events on and the tour de france is as on every year normally um and that's the only thing it gets me through winter so i'm very grateful for that and then every four years we get tour de france straight away followed by the olympics and oh i love i love this this year every four years Um, it's it's just jam-packed with the best sport in the world so I'm grateful to uh, to get to see another year of uh, another cycle of four years
0: and I know you're lying because you don't hate winter that much I know you love the base training that you get from spending all of winter on the trainer and I know you love the reward that gets you when you come out into summer
1: that's so true but uh, but yeah I still love uh, riding with the wind in my face and the sun on my back don't worry about that
0: yeah, absolutely. My gratitude this week is uh, I'm actually really grateful for the fact that this job that we have uh, allows us to um, have the flexibility to train like professional athletes. Uh, I wanted to be a professional athlete growing up, didn't quite make it, but uh, now still have the uh, job lifestyle where we get to um, do some really cool things. And we did some uh, pretty high tech VO2 max and lactate testing yesterday. We got the opportunity to do that, which we will talk about in another episode on the podcast. Um, and it just it's really nice to be able to. Um, train like a pro athlete and um, often train on pro hours you know you have the pro hours that if the uh, quotation marks doesn't have to be before or after set work hours uh, I am super grateful for that and I never ever take that for granted because I enjoy it so much um, and just a reminder for yourself to ask what are you grateful for th- this week it's a big theme of our podcast we've been doing it for a while now and it's uh, something that we find really beneficial and we know the listeners out there find really beneficial as well and we get people messaging us their gratitudes which is uh, quite nice as well some people send in their gratitude choose because we we do ask what you're grateful for. Uh, Moving on, Uh, we're just going to go straight into the Olympics because there is so much to talk about we just want to chat everything to do with the olympics like i said in the intro but uh, just before we do that a quick question from a listener someone sent in a question about uh, your percentage of ftp and training so they asked uh, what percentage of ftp should i use during workouts on the trainer compared to outside Um, as they find that most people they know and this is somewhat indicative uh, of most people is that they can't hold as much power on the trainer Um, they actually said i know i should do a 20 minute test on the trainer uh, but is there a guide that you use a general guide for what you you can perform indoor compared to outdoor?
1: Yes, the guide is do the test.
0: <laughs> yes. It's a very simple answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so look, we have athletes both sides of the coin here. Some can ride better indoor, some can ride worse indoor. So there's no general rule. That is kind of, uh, you know, one answer doesn't fit every athlete. So um, we've got some people who ride exactly the same indoor as outdoor. We've got some people who ride worse indoor than the outdoor. Some people ride better indoor. So yep. so the only way to make sure that you're training properly is to test yourself indoor and test yourself outdoor. And that's as simple as it needs to be.
0: Because why why would you try and guess when you can just do a test and get it as accurate as possible?
1: Yeah. I suppose the reason you wouldn't is because you're fearful of the test. and And when you know the reasons for the test and also the reason is to find out what your number is, But also the second reason is it is an unbelievably good training session at threshold so that you need to be doing that anyway because that's what your race is going to be.
0: Yeah, and this is uh, hypocritical for me because I'm sitting here saying, "Well, why can't this person just needs to do the test?" Yet I was planning on asking you, "Do I really have to do my uh, new outdoor test tomorrow?" Because I've got a new bike and I have to test the new power meter, indoor and outdoor. I've done the indoor test, and I really wasn't feeling like doing another outdoor test tomorrow because so many tests you just get a bit sick of it. And so I was planning on asking you, "Do I really have to do it?" And I already know what your answer is going to be.
1: <laughs> the only reason you wouldn't is if it's blowing a, a gale, which, funnily enough, it is supposed to be 90 kilometer hour winds. So that would be a reason not to do a test outdoors or sideways sleeting rain. So I might be let off the hook again. You really do need reasonably good conditions to do the test properly and accurately so you get the best outcome because we are, what are we doing it for? We're reminding ourselves that this is what we're going to train to. And if we do an inaccurate test, well, we're going to be training inaccurately for the next block of training. Yeah.
0: All right. Let's dive into the Olympics. Uh, The first thing we want to talk about is the theme of the Olympics for us so far. And there are so many examples of this across different sports, and that is pacing and uh the the uh watching the amount of different tactics with regards to pacing through different sports has been quite mind blowing. And I I wanna start with um a story of I was at the uh out to dinner with mates the other night and we were at dinner watching the Olympics. And it was really nice because we had a lockdown. And it was really good to be able to watch the Olympics as a group together and all pretend to be experts on different sports, and uh we we're watching the swimming and one of the guys said um, the commentators talk so much about pacing and, and execution and you say it can't be that complicated, can it? I mean, I don't understand what the tactic, there can't be that many tactics, surely. Um, and I said, well, funny enough, um, they actually have quite specific tactics and plans going into their pacing. You know, if you look at the split of the first 50 compared to the last 50 and the second third 50, they're all quite different. And athletes are trying to hit certain times per 50. And he said, so what, surely, you know, the, the Aussie people seem to be going a bit more conservative and then, you know, Ariana tipped miss one goal by coming through strong. He's like, surely that's as obvious as, as it needs to be. I said, that is a million dollar point and you'd be surprised that, you know, that is our whole podcast and you'd be surprised at how no athlete in the world seems to understand that, you know, and he said, so is that the tactic? And I said, yeah, pretty much. It's probably the, the best tactic you can do. And he said, it doesn't seem that hard. And I said you should uh, try and tell every single athlete that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and try and execute it.
0: Yeah. Yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: it, it's all very well saying, this is what I'm planning to do. Go out and try and do it. And there's so many examples. And look, you you are at the highest level of your sport in the world right at the Olympics. There is, you know, except for world titles, world yeah. championships, there's no other competition that's got more pressure. And it, it's just very difficult to execute a plan um, when you've got the world watching you, uh, your whole country's behind you. You don't want to mm-hmm. look foolish. Imagine if you dived into the water and, and you wanted to swim a 30-second 50 and the rest of the field swam 24, you're six seconds behind. But knowing that, you know, if it's a 1500, you ended up winning by 10 seconds because you swam 15 or 30 50s at, you know, 30 seconds and everybody faded to 36. But at the start, you were literally 40 metres behind. Um, people don't want to put themselves in that position of of looking embarrassingly out of kilter it's the sheep mentality i suppose but there's so many examples and look you know in the swimming we saw that with ariana titmus absolutely execute well where she she just let the others you know really you know blast off and fade and she came through and and it's interesting um how you and i discussed this about How does she know what pace she's swimming? Mm -hmm. As a swimmer, um, you you don't have any feedback um, and, you know, unless she's got form goggles which will tell her her pace in her in, in her eyes um which i don't think is legal in in the olympics anyway i'm not quite sure about that but uh but're yeah, well, asking as you know,
0: why, why aren't athletes wearing them and the only yeah. logical reason would be this they are illegal, because otherwise it's worth wearing them
1: <laughs> yes and and you would just be relying on the pace of other swimmers and you know that um uh the american girl does swim fast early and and fade so you would just pick her pace and sit off it a bit Um, but that's putting your trust in another person's uh, pace maybe she changed her pace you know and and swam slower so that could backfire Um, so it is interesting that swimmers talk about you know having a plan and a tactic but I'm I'm interested to know what they're basing it on, what feedback they're getting as they're doing it, and going to feel is the obvious thing that they're they're doing, but with the adrenaline and the excitement of the final of the Olympics, um, the, the, the thing you've ch- trained for five years, you know, in the past um, Olympic to Olympic, um, how are you measuring that? Because of course you're tapered, of course everything's going well. Yeah, you know, you're going to feel. I know in every other sport that we talk about. Uh, racing to feel is completely a different result when you actually uncover the data as you're doing it and um, you think you're holding back and then you look down at your watch if you're doing a an 800 and you know you're supposed to get to the first 200 in 30 seconds and you get there in 26 but it felt easy and so running to feel you know is the same as swimming to feel as to riding to feel you, mm. what you feel may not absolutely replicate Um, what the data is and you still could be going too far. So I'm interested. I love the fact that that's the tactics we were using. It was excellent. Um, But I'm really wondering what it was based on.
0: Yeah, you're spot on with that point because there was a great interview with uh, Ariana Tipness' coach who, by the way, she executed a if that was her race plan she executed it perfectly perfectly in both races and came through in the last 50 and won and he said that in the interview he said we had a clear race plan we knew exactly what she wanted to do every 50 and she executed it under pressure and like you're saying there is you're at the highest uh, level of race possible you've been building for this race for four years five years for these athletes and uh, she executed it so well you have to be so cool calm and collected to execute like that but like you're saying it can't have been that well because. You don't know what pace you're doing. And yes, these athletes train so disciplined that they probably could swim, you know, a fifty-five second lap with their eyes closed, um, because they know their pace so well. But once you add in the fact that this is an Olympic final, there's so much adrenaline, there's way more nerves than you could ever replicate in training, swimmers around you are doing different things. You just can't possibly know for sure. Um, you are more tapered leading into the race. Um you can't possibly know for sure, and you said this. Okay, how good an athlete you are, you can't possibly know for sure that that's the exact time you're running because you can't see it, or time you're swimming because you can't see it. So uh, it's a bit of a mixed bag here because on one hand it was clearly a well-executed race, but on the other hand you are racing blind. So it's it's a bit of a mixed bag.
1: Yeah, it's spot on. And I'm uh, I'm not really sure about the answer. But at the end of the day, the job was well done. Um, And uh, there is a lot of other examples that uh, we just saw the 800 meter heat uh, uh, for the women. And uh, one of the Moroccan girls uh, was 25 meters off the back after 200 meters. And it looked embarrassingly bad that, you know, how did this girl get into the event? And then
0: she qualified uh, fourth fastest. Um, The commentators were saying, um, what is this girl doing? Because they were saying she's a really good runner. How Did something happen? Why is she she 25 meters off the back? They were absolutely baffled. And we've spoken about this exact scenario. I mean, you just mentioned it before, but we've spoken about this exact scenario in running. It's either you run evenly and be 20 meters off the back and look ridiculous, or you just go with the race. And that's most people just tend to go with the race. And in fact, we've never seen this happen on a world stage. And we were both shocked seeing this race happen where this Moroccan girl this tactic and then she just because the the girls ended up running 200 or 201 which is four times 30 seconds uh, per 200 and yet yeah, they all went through in 27 um she went through three seconds behind so 20 meters behind 25 meters behind in 30 and she ran 30 30 30 30, 30 and ran evenly um, and we also know uh, we just came across a recent study that says that um the stress response and the lactate response in the body is so much worse when you go out too hard and, um, and fade compared to going out evenly and, um it's not just about the race itself. It's about how this Moroccan girl is going to feel in her semi-final and final over the next couple of days compared, and how much of an effort she had to exert in this heat. And it was just an absolutely brilliant example of someone not caring about the ego, not caring about being 25 meters off the back of the race. And then uh, I think she came third in the heat, so it was an automatic qualifier.
1: Yeah, and I, I think... Uh, To be fair, there is an Olympic gold medal in the 800 metre has been won by the American who did exactly that tactic, um, I think it was 24 years ago maybe, Um, and he was way off the back. Uh, This is the Olympic 800 final, and he wasn't one of the favourites, and he was way off the back, ran even splits and won. And it's worth looking up that YouTube video mm. to find that, uh, the only American to ever have won an 800, I think, um, at an Olympics and, and, you know, just that plan of execution and, and we talked about championship races compared to running a time trial. Um, you know, we'll talk, I think we'll talk about this later in the program, but, uh, but certainly, you know, uh, knowing what your ability is and if you, if you don't have a kick uh, and the race is really slow you're not going to qualify in in the heats to get to the final you need to run a time trial so that you can run even splits the whole way around so to make sure you in the girls situation um you know running a, a two two minute 800 you know if if you are not someone who can afford to jog around and then uh, be a part of the finished sprint then you're not going to qualify no matter how good a runner you are so understanding your own ability is is kind of key to your race plan and you know ariana titness In uh, the swim, you know, if if that she's obviously learned that because um, she is an even swimmer and doesn't have the the. Uh, ability to change pace and sprint sort of sort of at the finish where it looks like she is but she's actually swimming this you know similar pace to what she did on the on the lap on the way down if we're talking about the 100 meters um it's not like her splits were massively faster in the second half it's just that everybody else is fading so it looks like you're swimming faster um and you know the feeling and the enjoyment factor is horrendous when you do it the other way and you know that uh research paper that you you're uh, alluding to um you know the feeling when you're you, you know as a runner you got a piano on your back coming down the last 80 meters of an 800 or 400 meters where the lactate's so heavy you just hate the world and the same as a time trialer you know if you're coming home as a time trialer and you've got enough power to be you know picking up places as you go it you know you love it you you know you can't wait for the next event whereas if Mm. you're doing the opposite and fading you want to sell your bike um i've said that many times to a lot of the athletes i coach you know execute well and you won't want to sell your bike you'll just say this is great fun i enjoy i enjoy it it's good Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I mean, with that in mind, I have been watching a lot of the swim events that are 200, 400 and paying attention to the first 50 compared to the second, third and fourth 50. And it's uncanny how almost every single swimmer is going through that first split two to four seconds ahead of their last 50, you know, or especially ahead of the third 50. And they're all doing it to stay together as a group. But um you know, from everything we know, it's just a worse way to perform.
1: Um, and, that, and, you. and yeah, and that's so true. And it just it only suits one person, the person mm. who has uh, that style of pacing that's that mm. that the, the, that they're successful at. And mm. you know, so I can't I can't imagine in every single event in the pool um, that everybody has that. That's the way they, you know. That's the way they've achieved their results in the past in championship trials at their own country. They've got it. They've got away with it that way. But does that mean that it's 100% right? That's where I'm questioning. Mm. If they had another tactic, would they be better swimmers? Mm. Um, would they get better results? Mm. Sure, they're successful because at the top of they're at the top of their game in their country mm-hmm. and in the world. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the reason and logic they use behind. Well. You know, I'm pretty good at this, so I must know what I'm doing. But I'm, I'm saying no. You could be better mm. um, if you executed just like the Australians seemingly have decided to do, which I think has. You know, we haven't been this successful for a long time and you know, something has changed and I think it's I think it's the execution and they I've never heard them talk about it. They must have been listening to our podcast. <laughs> I've never heard them talk about it so much. You know, even the commentaries and channel seven have to be you know congratulated because they have gone and got the the best commentators from each sport and mm. they are experts in their field. Mm. And um, it's really good hearing their um Knowledge and and take on how each you know. I watch the canoeing and the kayaking, um, you know. Just listening to the experts, it's mm-hmm. you just get such an insight into what they should be doing, and yeah. and all of a sudden we all become experts instantly, which is yeah. quite hilarious. It's but
0: part of the fun of the Olympics, isn't it? <laughs> it is,
1: but uh, yeah, look, de- definitely um, the I think the mindset in the pool will change, um, hopefully, because of success of you know when people start winning, people want to emulate yeah. their style. And and if the style has been you've got to swim flat out and then just hang on, that's what we've been doing for the last 30 years and that's what everybody does. And the minute someone changes that and does a new method and wins, then it gets kudos. Um, it gets credibility and and then people will adapt it and we are in the minority we're fighting hard George to make it a, ma- a majority <laughs> yeah. to uh, to get everybody to actually start to not be sheep and, and to be running their own races or swimming their own um, swims so you know it will be interesting
0: yeah there's a, there's another race example we wanted to highlight and Jakob Ingebrigtsen the Norwegian runner one of the best runners in the world high chance of a gold medal in both the 1500 and 5000 at this Olympics he's definitely one to watch you'll be racing against our very own, Studio McSwain, and hopefully Dave McNeil in the 5K if he can make the final. Um, But he did a race in the Diamond League a month or so ago, maybe six to eight weeks ago, where um, he was sitting maybe sixth to eighth position, I think, um, off the lead pack. And he's he's one of the best runners in the world. He can run with the pace of the lead pack, but he's a very paced runner. And he does all his training very meticulously, very structured, very along this line, never going too far above his threshold. He's just really good at staying at threshold. Anyway, the runner in front of him made a mistake. Slash was getting fatigued and started to lose a gap between uh, the front four to five guys. And suddenly Ingebrigtsen, um, who was sitting behind this guy was 10 to 15 meters behind the lead pack. This is a big problem because um, he's now 10 to 15 meters behind, has to do a big effort to catch up to that group, go way over his threshold, uh, and put him in a lot of in, in the red zone coming into uh, the end stages of the race. And instead of doing that, we just watched after that, after, lap after lap, he just stayed the same pace, but slightly increased, and he caught up two and a half meters per lap. And four laps later, he was back onto the pack without going into the red zone. And it was just an incredible example of disciplined pacing and he ended up winning the race.
1: Yeah, it's a really good example, isn't it? Um, one of the things I wanted to highlight and being the coach is he should not have allowed that to happen in the first <laughs> yeah. place. Yeah, He should have been more vigilant in what was happening ahead of him. Um, and, you know, that can happen in a bike race where you're behind someone who drops the wheel and all of a sudden there's a 10-meter gap to make up. Well, you know, you've got to notice these things before they happen yeah. um, or as they're happening so yeah. that you don't put yourself in that position. But to his, you know, the point we're making here is that, you know, You've got two choices: close the gap quickly and burn some matches, or do what he did, and he ended up going on and ran an incredible time. Um, and you know, you've got to know your ability, like I was saying before. Um, and if if you if you give yourself a task that's above your ability, it's going to end in tears normally. Um, of course, we break world records and Olympic records and PBs by by n- not going the traditional method by going the planned executed method is the way to do those results. And we've seen examples of that right from Kipchoge in the world marathon to run, you know, Two, two minute 51 kilometre splits for 41 of those kilometres mm. and then run the last one at 248 mm. to break the world record. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's a classic example of, you know, doing it exactly right. So you can you can lift to do a PB and that's all you need to do, lift marginally, mm-hmm. but you can't do that many times in a race. Um, and, and that's one of the things I was kind of keen on talking about was the difference between championship races and, and normal everyday
0: races and... <laughs> Because yeah. it will be interesting to see how Ingebrigtsen goes in these championship races, which are so much high and low. And um, you know, we talk about it in Ironman and seventy point three. Is that you want to spend as minimal time as possible going over the red zone? Because you just don't need to in a four to eight hour event, you know, or four to twelve hour yeah. event. Sorry, um, you want as minimal time as possible. And Ingebrigtsen applies that even to a five k level at the world, at the top of the world, where he just refuses to go into that red zone. He just wants to run at his best pace the whole time, but. Yeah, you're right. When it's a championship, you have to change tactics, right?
1: Yeah. Well, do you have to change tactics? And that's the question I'm asking because all of the African nations, the Ethiopians, Kenyans, uh, Moroccans, um, they all have this great ability to change pace. And that's their secret weapon. And the, the, the European style riot runner, or even the Australian style runner, we are used to time trial running. Um, and, and it's a po- probably because we don't have the depth. And I- I- in the African trials, there's literally 25 blokes who can win. Yeah. So you have to, you know, everybody's absolutely running at their max from start to finish, um, whereas, you know, where there's less depth in an event, you can dictate the terms of how the race is going to be run more. Um, so the unpredictable nature um, that that the Africans bring to races is the thing that makes it fantastic, and and that's why they win so many races because they throw everybody else off their Race plan, because um, they're putting people into the red zone, and that, and that is what championship races are all about. Is uh, and they're very different to, to any other race. And and you know, if you actually get to qualify by running a time trial, so let's just to pick the five thousand which we're talking about. You know, if you wanted if you wanted to qualify in the uh, thirteen minutes, thirteen seconds, you would plan the each lap, each two hundred, each hundred, almost down to, you know, to its it, within an inch of each each. Uh, sector so that you are not burning matches and you can lift at the finish to qualify but come championship races the first 200 could be run in 24 seconds and then the next one could be run in 40 seconds that's the nature of championships you could get a lap in the middle where they're running a 60 and then all of a sudden someone throws in a 56 you know what are you going to do how are you going to respond to this and this is where i think um, the Africans have it over the rest of the world uh, because they can do that and then recover and do it again. Um, so you, I'm saying you need to adapt your training to championship possibilities. And it's all very well training like that and training to lactate threshold and making sure you stay within your ranges. But when it comes to a championship race, if someone throws a curveball at you um, by changing the pace, and if you go with that, you are going to probably – be the demise of your result so can you be patient and and hold your pace and then allow yourself to lose 10 meters and then take 800 meters to get that back and then have it happen to you again and then and then you know get crawl yourself back again you know these are things that i i would be getting uh, athletes to be doing both styles of racing uh training so that when the race, the championship race comes, they're ready for anything. And, and I don't think a lot of, uh, athletes and coaches have given this much thought. It's, it's the style they've trained at to get them to be successful is what they stick with the true and tried method. And they're not flexible enough and that's why you get so much disappointment in results at championship races where people underperform because the race has had a curveball thrown at them and they can't react to it or they don't know what to do and they just go with the flow and it ends up being detrimental because their body can't cope and you know, it, it it sounds very controversial because I'm actually contradicting some coaches and athletes at the highest level, but I'm sure they would be better athletes if they had thought about it this way. And there wouldn't be so many disappointed athletes coming away from these championship events.
0: So let's talk about training specificity for the event and we'll move into the triathlon because that was a wild two races in the men's and women's for different reasons. And we was speaking about the fact that, you know, the triathlon at the Olympics is almost a totally different sport in terms of triathlon. It's definitely different to a 70.3 or um, Ironman, um, completely different. And even it's different to a standard Olympic distance. You know, it's draft legal cycling and the whole nature of all three disciplines inside the Olympic triathlon uh, creates a very uh, interesting and fun to watch dynamic, but it's, you have to train very specifically for this type of event.
1: That's a really good uh, lead into the to this point because the Olympic draft legal triathlon is nothing like triathlon. It is a you might as well be talking about the only similarities are you swim bike and run, but <laughs> yeah. you don't do them the same way as you would yeah. do a normal sprint Olympic half Ironman and Ironman because of the the draft legalness of the of the ride it changes the whole event. Um, so all of a sudden the swim becomes important because if you don't get Uh, in the lead pack you are going to have to fight to get across to the pack on the bike and the pack on the bike aren't riding that hard but they're riding it completely different to a, a, a threshold time control they're riding it like a criterium race and the courses that are selected are all very technical with lots of cornering and i think the bike course was i don't know five or six laps i can't remember exact details but each lap had eight corners which is you know up between 30 and 40 accelerations out of a corner Um, So that's very criterium-like style Mm. bike riding. And if you just train threshold and didn't train zone six and seven uh, at 120, 140, 150%, you would be caught out uh, in this particular event. So you need to practice riding a completely different style of time trial bike riding. You need to be riding like a criterium rider, training like a criterium rider, where you're doing lots of accelerations at high power. Uh, and then you know, if we we did look at the winner's profile, um, it was great to see his his power stats. Yeah,
0: it's so yeah. good of him to release his power because he needs to tell the pro cyclist to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah and uh, and I think forty three percent of his ride was in zone one, mm.
0: and which, is, which is technically active recovery. So, you know, <laughs> that's right.
1: Yeah. So pretty much what they were doing was maximal acceleration out of every corner, then. Uh, Minimal pedaling into the next corner, which which gives that so much time in zone one or zero. Mm. Um, so, so you were doing 450 watts out of the corner, then zero watts into the next corner. And in between each of those corners, they were doing something like uh, tempo. Um, because they could have been sitting in the middle of the pack where they were barely touching the pedals because of the drafting effect and the only people who were working were the ones on the front and I'd love to see the files of every one of the athletes and the ones who did the most work and, and we noticed that difference between the women and the male race um, where the male race seemed to be a lot of guys um, doing a lot of work and a lot of guys sitting in whereas the female race, uh, the lead pack seemed to be shared more Mm-hmm. Um so so what does that mean well it means when you run if you've sat in the mail race in the middle of the pack you've swum brilliantly the only difference is who's going to run the best and and that's why if you trained on the bike properly as a criterium rider then you got off and run the best 10k that is the way you should have structured your program um, to to enable you to be the best runner after that type of riding
0: yeah, exactly. And if you broke down his his power zones, uh, it was yeah above forty percent in that active recovery, um, and then about thirty percent above VO two max. What you're saying those zones five, six, and seven that is a long time to be doing those big bursts, um, and then thirty percent in between. Whereas if we look at a seventy point three, you know, it should be ninety five percent of the time at. Um, yeah, zone, zone four sub threshold
1: yeah yeah 80 to 90 percent of your FTP and yeah, exactly. and th- that is a remark and if you looked at an Olympic distance a 40k time trial you would try to be riding between 92 to hundred percent of your FTP mm-hmm. not anywhere at 105 or 100 you know these guys were riding 120 percent above their FTP for 30% of yeah. the race. Yeah. Um, so, you know, looking at that analysis, if you're a coach and you're trying to get your athlete to the next Olympics, that's what you should be doing. You mm-hmm. should be doing efforts like that. You still need to be a good threshold rider, but you need to be doing those, those way over efforts, 120% plus or more, which is what makes a good criterion road racer.
0: And we were laughing at um, a lot of the guys that were just getting a free sit the whole time and just hiding right in the middle of the pack and the guys that were doing all the work in the front. And you're just thinking, why would you ever do any work in the front? And there was some specific examples of some countrymen sacrificing their race for their fellow countrymen and getting on the front and doing some work. But, and then again, it's the nature of the race because unfortunately, uh, two of our Aussie women weren't weren't there in the swim weren't weren't the lead packs and then they were doing a mountain of work on the ride um but just couldn't even catch the lead packs and the lead packs actually got to the run and got back on the course before they finished their bike and so they were um they had to be told to get off the course you know 20 of the 60 elite women uh, didn't finish the race because the lead pack runners got there too quickly so um yeah depending on where you end up in the race it's, it's a totally different event and um these tactics of hiding et cetera are all really good if you're good at uh, criterium racing and it quickly reminded me of um we saw a photo last week of uh, a traveler rider again one of your friends uh, at a crit and a, a photo came up just the standard uh, they release photos of all the crit racing and the traveler rider was on the front in the middle of the race and you just said what the hell are you doing on the front <laughs> you know I don't ever want to see a traveler <laughs> rider on the front because it means you're doing all the work yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, and yeah, everything you've just said is uh, spot on, and uh, I, I can't can't criticise anything you've said, and and it's just lesson after lesson after lesson.
0: Well, we'll move into the to kind of the run leg, um, for both the men's <laughs> and the women's. In the men, um, I was so impressed that uh, he decided to kick where it hurt. You know, he seven seven k mark um he just put his head down and said i'm going now and that was where it was really hurting for them and they were almost hanging on for the finish at that point
1: yeah well i i said to you i think each one of those three guys were the best runners after that particular style of racing um the 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 cream had risen to the top Uh, everybody else I think there was eight or nine in the male race (coughs) at the end of the bike leg that realistically um, were a chance after one or two k's of running the rest had already dropped off Um, and slowly but surely that eight went down to three and those three could not be separated and they were all they were all a chance to win the gold medal and the remarkable thing for me was the guy who won was the least best looking uh, runner out of the three of them. He looked like he was struggling the most, and yet he outfoxed, out tacticianed. It was an incredible uh, uh, exponent of how to to win a race. I, I was so impressed with what he did, and yeah. and he just put the hammer down with three k to go and shocked them, and and he bluffed them um mm-hmm. Absolutely. you know he started sprinting literally sprinting um for about 150 meters to 200 meters and got five meters on them and split them split the three of them mind you he'd made them do a turn as a runner uh, <laughs> prior to that um you know come on let's work together and I, I could see him talking to them um and he slopped he jumped back and let someone else go to the front and take the wind um and you know, he outfoxed them there. That, if someone says to me, do a turn in a running race. <laughs> I'm, I, you don't want to hear what my answer is going to be. <laughs> yeah. You know, besides get yeah. stuffed. Yeah. Y- if you're so smart, you, you know, yeah, you do yeah, it. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. but you're not telling me how to run my race. Yeah. Um, and the other two guys, they were like sheep. They did a turn. Yeah. And then he accelerated past yeah, them from them. They'd done a turn. I was like, oh, my goodness. This yeah. is, this is uh, bike riding as a runner. Um, um, so I, I just, I take my hat off to him. It was execution 101. Um, and, and he just put the hammer down, got them bluffed and kept that gap. And, and then they couldn't bridge the gap because he had, you know, the mindset he had was on, you know, when you, when you, it's like having the yellow Jersey, he's in front and Mm. you can see the gold medal and Mm. the other guys are then already, uh, have lost the race. You know, with 3k out whereas they were all pretty equal I thought and in mm-hmm. fact he was the worst out of the three I thought
0: mm. the amazing thing about the bluff was he cruised the last k it was the most enjoyable last k for him the last 700 metres he was smiling laughing it was done he could relax the pace he was waving um, my housemate said to me when he kicked he said um, has he gone too early I said, well, two things are going to happen here. One is that he uh, has gone too early and he's going to blow up, but at least I said, at least he's taking an opportunity and he's just going for it. He wants this goal and he's not racing for second or third, which I kind of thought that um, the other two were happy with the podium. Plus they couldn't just go with him. But I said, secondly, this might be an amazing move because often if you go when it's the hardest, you know, he's gone at 3K to go. He only has to put in that effort for, yeah, a K and a half, 2K. And then the race is won. they will crack because... Um, they think the race is gone, and then the last k is actually easier compared to if you're all sit there holding that tempo right to the last k, it's an extremely painful last k because they've held the same tempo, then they have to try and sprint at the finish. Um so yeah and, the most, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and everybody's got a chance. you've
1: yeah. you've let it, you've you've given everybody all three runners a chance by yeah. by you know so many occasions in a race where with you know four or five minutes to go, you're thinking, oh, I don't know if I can hang on here. And if someone puts in a little effort, that's it for you. Mm. You, you. You're done. You know, mm. you're already at your maximum. Um, mm. But if if you just hang on to the end, it's amazing how you grow legs and, and, you know, the competitiveness of each person. When you get a sniff, don't give, you know, a sucker an even chance. Uh, he could, he could come f- miraculously from the dead and, and beat you mm-hmm. um, by giving him a chance and mm-hmm. taking them to the line. So mm-hmm. what a fantastic move, risk reward,
0: 101 tick. Yep. Um, One thing I will say about him, and I just have to make this point, uh, was I could not believe that he won with the amount of water he took in on the Rhine. Oh, it was actually laughable for me. You know, there was it was such a hot day there. The humidity was at extreme levels. And so uh, the uh, officials had set up water stations really regularly, every 300 to 400 metres or so, like extremely regularly, way more regularly than another triathlon, a normal triathlon. And the athletes were quite worried about the heat. So, every athlete at the stations were grabbing bottles and throwing them over themselves, which is really important to cool down because if you overheat, you can't perform. But watching him, he was taking a sip almost every time. And so, he was going past, grabbing water, taking a sip. I said, he's he's taking in mouthfuls of water every 300 to 400 meters. I know in an Ironman or a 70.3, you need to hydrate consistently. But in a 29-minute run, which is what he's done at the end... You just, I don't care what you're saying, you just did not need that much water. And it showed by he, he vomited it all up once he crossed the line. His stomach would have been so full of water. He just he vomited pure water. The TVs only sh- showed a slight part of it by accident because uh, they normally look away when they vomit. And I'm shocked he ran so well by consuming that much water. I just thought it was way too regular. And I th- really think it could have derailed his race.
1: Well, I, I tend to agree. And, uh, it, it you know, he competed so well. Uh, I think that, you know, it could have actually been detrimental uh, had those guys not dropped off. Mm. um, You could have found, we, we could have found a different result. You know, he, he did everything right, so I didn't have to worry about that scenario. But I absolutely agree the overconsumption of, of water is, yeah, it could have been detrimental to the to the outcome. And, uh, you know, we would now see, and this is something we talked about a long time ago on one of the podcasts, where um, people see that that's what you do. That's what the Olympic champion does. You keep drinking, you just keep drinking water. <laughs> so every day, triathletes now they'll grab as much water as they possibly can and throw it down their throat because that's that's what the winner does it reminded me of the commonwealth games with rob Di costello when he actually went to the toilet and grabbed in his pants in in the middle of the marathon at the commonwealth games in brisbane and he kept grabbing sponges to wipe his legs because of the embarrassment of Following through, you know, as a runner. So he's wiping his legs from what was happening. And so from that point on. That's right. And from that point on, runners were going in marathons, grabbing sponges and wiping their legs, uh, just copying what de Costello was doing because that's what he did as a winner. And they didn't understand the reason he was doing it was to clean his leg, not Mm. any other reason. But, you know, People will copy the most obscure um, tactics that people seem seem like they're tactics, but it's actually nothing to do with tactics. And I don't know why he was doing that. Whether it was trying to put people off, I'm not sure. Whether he was trying to get water. the other yeah. the other runners to think that oh, this guy's struggling, he keeps taking water. I don't know whether that was his tactic. But uh, anyway, it, it
0: kind of looked like it was just a natural reaction. He just kept grabbing it. I just don't think he. <laughs> I think he was so involved in the race, he didn't realize how much water he was taking in. But it yeah. shocked me. And Iron Man actually say blatantly that they have more problems. Problems with overhydration and people, because you can get really sick from overhydrating, drinking too much water, and I have more problems with that than dehydration in races, which really says something. It's so important to hydrate yourself, but you know you can really take it too far. Um, Last thing on the triathlon was um, I just thought that the British girl, Georgia Taylor Brown, ran a great leg after getting a flat tire, an easy chance to panic um, off the bike. You know, she's such a gun runner and you could see the podium slipping away when she just gets something so unfortunate like a flat tire. Um, And she had a chance to um, compete well against Duffy because they're both absolutely gun runners and Duffy ran an unbelievably strong leg to win. By the way... I don't I didn't see Duffy take any water. I reckon she took I reckon she took two sips for the whole 10k, you know. And she ran super well. So that proves that you didn't need the water um, to get through. Well, she was just focused on on it, running. But it doesn't yeah.
1: prove anything, John. It proves that fifty fifty worked.
0: That's true. Yeah. But um Yeah, Taylor Brown, I thought, was really composed, didn't panic, just ran her race and ran solely and got herself into second spot, which was a really good run. Disappointing because she would have been a chance for the gold, but that was a really standout run for me.
1: I would have loved to have seen her not get a puncture and challenge Duffy because Duffy ran an unbelievably consistent race from start (laughs) to finish. She looked the strongest. She was the strongest. She won the gold medal. She deserved it. She did a lot of work on the bike. She looked awesome on the bike. Um, And obviously, she's no slouch as a swimmer, but her run was outstanding. And it would have been great to see the the, the, uh, British girl actually get off the bike with her and see what would have happened. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I would love to have seen her challenged. um, But she deserved to win that race. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. She was the best on the day.
0: Absolutely. Moving on, we'll finish off with uh, the cycling. We had the cycling road race to touch on, the mountain bikes and the time trial. So, I mean... There's not heaps to say from the cycling road races. They were really um, <laughs> exciting races to watch for different reasons. The men's road race was just wild. Um you know, we've talked a lot about these riders over the course of the Tour de France. It was great to see them all go head to head. No real major learnings from the event other than the same sort of thing. You know, take your opportunity and the best rider doesn't always win. You know, Wood Bernard was definitely the strongest. He did them a mountain of work and I think definitely deserved second Now, man. I was absolutely gunning for him in that sprint, screaming at the TV. Um, but Carapaz with the breakaway moving wins
1: yeah uh, another example of uh, we've talked many times about how does one or two riders stay away from uh, eight or ten mm-hmm. in a pack it just happens race after race one day races this is what happens every single time hesitation in the peloton guys taking their opportunities up the front and they win uh, mm-hmm. it, it's just another reminder of you know um, guys uh, not willing to work as teams um, because eight should beat two or one rider mm-hmm. every time, mm-hmm. not not one out of nine times, mm-hmm. but 10 out of 10 times. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's just baffles me that it just continues to happen. And, and I think the coach in me would be screaming at the rest of the guys in the bunch, you know, you you all riding for second, or yeah. or do you want to actually have a go here? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know the verbal abuse I'd get coming back at me, <laughs> you know mind your own business. Yeah. Um, but you know, come on guys, let's let's actually do something and have a crack. And and I'd be certainly saying those people who don't want to be having a crack, you know, sit on the back for as long as you like, but don't you dare sprint at the finish. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but yeah, look, I just think uh, you know. The men's race was a standard uh, one-day, one-day classic race. It was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, the the opportunist won. Um, mm-hmm. I love it. Uh, it was a course where he 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 knew the course and he attacked when it counted. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, relied on the hesitation. All the classic things. It's just the same race. Race plan won again. Mm-hmm. Um, the women's race was incredible. Uh, just
0: positively and negatively
1: uh, (laughs) yeah the way that road cycling has gone where it's so scripted and so reliant on information and it you know the, the the person listening to this podcast is an everyday cyclist or triathlete and they don't have the luxury of having someone in their ear telling them what to do next and i think that is a really good lesson for the pro peloton to take a little bit more responsibility for what's happening in their race and to know what is going on around them and not rely on their ds in the car telling them you know who's up the road take notice watch be aware be alert and take responsibility for your own outcome
0: just if you didn't see it, it was all over the news, but if you didn't see it, anime Van Vluten was away from the peloton, uh, coming second, but didn't realise that she was coming second. She thought she was the solo breakaway, uh, but there was a rider further up the road who'd been out most of the day, um, and she came through the line and celebrated because she thought she'd won gold medal and forgot that there was someone up ahead. So-
1: <laughs> or didn't know there was someone up ahead, yeah, not yeah. Even, for- even forget. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's just, you know... It, it- we do say concentrate, and whether you're a triathlete or a cyclist, you need to concentrate about what's happening around you, and whether that's knowing how many people went in the break. And then when you catch them one by one, count eight went away, seven came back. That means there's still one person. Or if you catch the last person who thinks the last person, it's okay to say, Is there anybody else up the road? Yeah. You know, you yeah. can't ask that question. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as a triathlete, the same, you know, just Making sure you are aware of what's going on, where you are, you know, and and you can see that when you go in an out and back course, where you are in comparison to others. Not that it's going to change your race plan, but it just gives you an idea of how you're sitting. So understanding what's going on in the race is key. to to making different decisions. And clearly they would have made a lot more different decisions had they known there was still one more rider. The the Dutch would have ridden completely different. Um, It must have been interesting sitting in the car watching – the race unfold without being able to help them yeah Um, yeah they must have been tearing their hair out (laughs) why aren't you working together what is going on do you realize that someone's stopped the road maybe they didn't realize either i don't know um (laughs) but uh yeah so it was just another example of uh you know even the pros make catastrophic mistakes um and this is the olympic games and it's not like there's going to be another olympic games in four months time it's four years time so you know and these riders won't probably be at the next olympics because they're maybe too old and that's your one chance and we always talk about you only get one chance sometimes at, at, you know take your opportunity when it's there and to make a, a mistake like that uh, uh, it's not to do with physicalness it's to do with paying attention mm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, you want to touch on the mountain bikes quickly. You, you weren't happy yes. with some of the th- I was <laughs> not. I was
1: not happy with the mountain bikers. Um, I thought it was a great spectacle. It was a great course and it, they're a great set of riders. There's everything good about it. Was, And what was disappointing was the execution. Like I know in mountain bike racing, it is really important that you get a good start because it is a mass start with possibly 300 riders who are all trying to get to the, the first part of the single track near the front. And I get that and that is important. But the Olympics had 23 riders and there isn't as much pressure on getting to the front of the single track when it's a long race. Mm. And and uh, Pidcock did that very well. And he sat back and I think he was about... 10th or 15th into the first section of a single track and he just steadily worked his way through the other guys were just smashing themselves and talk about you know riding too hard early and fading that's exactly what the whole women and men's races were about riding too hard and fading everybody was riding way above their first lap was so much faster than their middle laps and their last lap um so that was you know as great a spectacle as it was <laughs> um Uh, I'm not sure whether people realise that's what was happening when you look at uh, the times for the laps. And uh, just another example of, you know, at the highest level, they're still making, you know, I'll call them catastrophic mistakes because they are. It's the four-year thing. Um, And if you think you're a chance and you do that, um, unless you've trained that way where you're going to sprint for one lap out of seven or ten or how many laps they did, um, and that's what you've trained to, great. Um, and that's, that's your uh, strength, awesome, Yeah, but I guarantee it's not.
0: And it's important to note that uh, we're not trying to be uh, couch coaches here where we're just picking on all the professional athletes because like you've said many times, these are the elite athletes, they're absolute superstars, the, their athletic ability, especially these mountain bikers, like you said, it's so great to watch um, and they're so good for so many reasons. You're just uh, making this point to help the listener realize that you can still make mistakes even if you're doing really well and there's still areas that you can improve on.
1: A hundred percent. And these are the elite people in their fields. And just because they're the, the elite doesn't mean that they're doing everything perfectly. They're doing a lot well to get to that level mm. and they have incredible engines. But I'm just trying to give the listener advice at a high level because we're watching, we're watching it at a high level. If we had footage of the local, you know, under 23 race and, you know, people wanted to have coaching tips on what was happening in the race, I'd be saying the same things. Mm. And these guys would be making similar mistakes um just because they you know a set of athletes do it one way doesn't make it right um and and again i'm yeah, you know, i'm just trying to look for coaching tips so that the the average athlete can learn from the fact that uh no one is perfect in this and uh, even at the professional level they're still making errors um which which are costly
0: yeah One of the last things we wanted to touch on was uh, some unbelievable performance in the time trial, the cycling time trial. And as far as time trials go, what an exciting event. And I'll just say off the bat, the Aussies, um, Grace Brown coming fourth in that field was a surprising event Um, and I don't even think she was disappointed at being close to third because she performed way out of her skin and well above where she expected so although she was close to bronze uh, she would be in no way nor should she be disappointed with that fourth result it was a really epic result which showed her capability to mix it with the best in the world.
1: Yeah and look her form has been building as we've followed her through the summer season with uh, Strata Bianca and uh, the uh, One Day Classics and the the Giro Rosa and she has been performing very well in the time trial and uh, really attacking and putting herself out there and and her form's been building so it was fantastic to see her mixing it with the best in the world and you know you can't go past the one, the, the winners and um yeah. and i look i just thought her effort was outstanding and of course she'll be disappointed not to get a medal but um but what a, what a, she represented herself and her country so well fantastic
0: and then Rowan Dennis was able just to do one better by a uh, whopping 0. 0.4 of a second and get himself into a bronze. And um, what a finish to the time trial where second to fourth, um, fifth. or second to fifth, sorry, are all within a second of each other. Imagine riding for 56 minutes, hard as you can solo. And then um, it was a gunner that came fourth to Dennis. Was it Philip uh, Gunner? Yeah, Stephen uh, Kung. Sorry, Stephen Kung. Gunner was fifth. Um yeah. Yeah, Stephen Kuhn, imagine riding that hard and then you you point four off crossing the line for a bronze medal and
1: Well he had he had third place with five hundred to go and Rowan Dennis's finish was exceptional and he got a half a second back from five hundred mm. to the finish. Um, that's the attention to detail. And Rowan Dennis is you know, he rode that all the way to the line. I'm not saying Stephen Kuhn didn't, mm. but Rowan lifted and, and you know we, when you lose by half a second, you know, not talking about gold medal because Roglic was that far in front, <laughs> yeah. but but second, you know, Dumoulin, oh, that's a story in itself. Um, mm, to come back, yep. to come back after, you know, his mental illness and, um, you know, to get a second silver medal at two Olympics in a row, um, you know, to, to come from obscurity again to, to get that result was incredible. But, you know, Second, third, fourth, fifth, all finished within three seconds of each other at that level is unbelievable, especially when the winner is a minute ahead. Um, Roglic was just outstanding. And I I just wanted to mention so much about the men's time trial. Uh, Roglic, you know, so many disappointments. Uh, Tour de France, uh, crashes, um, you know, this year's Tour de France was so bad for him. Last year he was winning until the last t- time trial. How's the irony mm. that he's now the time trial champion of the world when he lost the Tour de France because his time trial was so poor? Mm. Is that someone who has absolutely taken two years and what karma to, to actually come back and and take into now the Olympic champion time trialist mm-hmm. um, and, he, you know, I just think patience, um, never giving up on a dream. Perseverance. Um, perseverance.
0: Perseverance through adversity. Just,
1: yeah. <laughs> oh, incredible. And remain calm for two years. Never got flustered, never cracked it. Um, just put his head down, got back to work. Oh, what an outstanding story! Um, and look, Dumoulin we just talked about, but uh, certainly Rowan Dennis, who's had his ups and downs, and you know he's a he's a world champion three times over. Um, he would dearly have loved to have won that race, but you know he he fought to the very end and. And I think he's uh, he executed quite well, and I mm. think he would be very satisfied to be on the podium.
0: Absolutely. And the last thing we wanted to mention, which is not one of our main sports, but like you said at the start, uh, I've definitely become a canoe slalom expert uh, after watching <laughs> the Olympics. I now know the difference between C one and K one, and single paddle versus double paddle. And um, this was a great insight getting to know Jess Fox even more and her story. And Channel Seven did a great job building that up over the um, over the pre Olympic stuff and in the Olympics about how much pressure had been on her um, being the best in the world but still hadn't won a gold medal. She'd been silver and bronze at previous two Olympics. For me, uh, I have loved all our gold medals. I think Ariana Titmuss' gold medals were just goosebumps I had watching them, especially her coach's reaction, which went viral, her family reaction. But for me, this gold medal um, from Jess Fox, Taste the Cake, is the best gold medal so far for the Aussies.
1: Oh, I absolutely agree with you. I I know nothing about <laughs> yeah. paddling. Um, and just the story that 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 she has um, developed from two thousand and twelve to two thousand and twenty one, and you know talk about Roglic two years. She's been doing this for nine. Um, and come so close and then the event that she thought she was going to win she was number one in the world for in the first event she came third um, that would have been a blow to her mm-hmm. um, and no she re- re-evaluated reset and she smashed them she won she won that clearly she was 10 seconds ahead of third and 3 seconds ahead of second and that's a big margin in in that sport from what I've mm-hmm. seen as, a, as an expert already <laughs> yeah. um, and I just thought you know that gave me goosebumps. That was just, uh, you know, the extreme level of perseverance, patience, persistence, never giving up on a dream. Yeah, um, taking your opportunity and and being gracious in defeat. And oh, what a, what an example um, she is! Um, and uh, that was the best uh, um, podium national anthem. You know, it, mm. it really was quite. A, I felt quite emotional for mm. her. it. Was. Um, it yeah, was, it was brilliant. Getting I in was, the moment.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was the same. It was just before our um, travelers Swift race last <laughs> night, and I was pretty amped for the race after that. I tell you, um, very,
1: yeah, very inspirational, very motivational. It Doesn't have to be your sport, but yeah. you can. You, the point of the podcast is, you can get so much inspiration from watching others, and and in adversity and in success. Mm. And, um, and we did we did skip the rowers, and I, I wanted to quickly mention before we finish that um I, I just think we've got a real good history in rowing and and they've come through again and it was a pretty special day the other day when we they won two gold medals in the space mm. of you know 15 minutes and mm-hmm. and in and an event that we're everybody knows the awesome foursome and it happened to be both male and female fours winning mm. um winning those races so that was pretty special and uh And again, you know, sticking to the process, working as a team um, uh, and they only just won. Mm. So um, it was very good.
0: Plenty of stories to come out of the Olympics. There's so much triumphs, so much uh, painful lessons, so much disappointment. There's only one gold medal winner in each event, you know, and you do see the downsides of it and it's really hard to watch. But, you know, they're the important things to look at as well because it happens to all of us. We do have really negative moments and hopefully when it's your time to shine, um, it might not be in the Olympic stage getting a gold medal, but uh, that's why we love this talking about all this stuff in this podcast, because for us, you know, we get chances to shine in our chosen sport and our chosen event to even just aiming for a PB and improving ourselves that's what exactly
1: what i was going to say jord um you know it's not all about the 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 gold medal it's about your personal improvement and you know if you can manage to get a a pb and you don't make the final of some event you know i i would be ecstatic i would be you know over the moon if, if i've improved um and performed on the day better than i have on any other day then that's a that's a victory and that's the way we should be looking at it as everyday um, athletes. And, um, you know, the Olympics are special. We, we Of course, we applaud victory, um, but we should also applaud PBs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's it for this episode. Uh, the athletics has started. The, the major part of the Olympics for me, I cannot wait to watch all the athletics. So I'm sure we're going to be talking about it on one of the next few podcasts. Um, very exciting. On one of the next few podcasts as well, we have Brenton Ford coming back from effortless swimming. Uh, everyone loved his first episode. He has great insight into swimming knowledge. So we're going to be asking him all about his thoughts on the Olympics. Maybe things he, he saw that uh, athletes could improve on, what he thinks about all these tactics stuff we've been talking about. So we can't ha- wait to have Brenton on. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.